welcome to Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. For this show, I'll be telling three stories pulled from three different submitted titles at random. I've never seen these titles before. And I'll be making them up as I go along. This first story is called 10,000 Tourists in the Last Scoop of Gelato. Gerald didn't make the count himself. He went on the trip alone to Utah for a curated tourist event. He tried to count the amount of people that arrived that day, but by his count, it must have been about 10,000. that the last scoop of gelato was available to be seen. Ever since it was outlawed. By the Imperial interplanetary forces that came to Earth all those years ago. Many of their banishments seemed futile and unnecessary. Whatever oppressions that alien culture had, that's what they try to deprive of the human race. They banned socks. Insects with too many legs. They also banned gelato, and for a while, uh, once the mandate was put down, people still made gelato in secret 
had some saloons to have any all all types of gelato product products that were also banned. Jello, pudding, you name it. Once the aliens found out, they made a swift call to exile all those humans that made those delicious gelato treats. But then there was a rumor that there was still a scoop of gelato intact. People found out about it through encrypted messages that the aliens couldn't decipher through text, through letters, through carrier pigeons. Gerald didn't believe it at first. But he despised his life in this imperial authoritarian rule. So on a whim and a prayer, he went to Utah to see if the gelato really existed. He went there and it was on par with a event like Coachella or some sort. Surprisingly festive for this new dystopian reality he had to cope with. It was like a music festival without the music. Once he arrived, his primary thought was, where's that gelato? As he sought it out, he could feel the craving for the tasty treat kick in. He remembered, he remembered had it, having gelato as a kid. All those beautiful, wonderful memories. He knew if there was truly only one scoop of gelato left, he knew he would probably not be able to eat it without having his skin ripped apart by other tourists who were also craving gelato, but if he could only see it, it proved that the memories were not, were not imagination, were not synthetically implanted there by the cunning aliens themselves. That's something the aliens were known to do. They would implant memories into humans without their knowing. To give them more material to motivate themselves to obey their rule. way of thinking, no, no, no. The guidance under the Imperial Aliens are, it's a much better way to live, surely. 
I remember it was much worse before they arrived. But everyone knew in their hearts. Most people. People who made the attempt to self-actualize and to be self-aware. Knew that was to the contrary. So Gerald was in Utah, because I've rented the state before. He found the land landscapes very beautiful. And all the tourists were around in an open area. He walked around, didn't know how the scoop would be revealed. If it was on display, the aliens would find it. Was it something he had to look for? Was this impromptu festival guys to find the truth, to find a secret? Maybe there'd be a whole stash of gelato. He could find himself. There'd be enough for everyone. Partake and discuss the before times, before the aliens came, before the banishments. Before the planetary exiles began. He's never left Earth and he didn't know what it was like off planet. But he wouldn't dare to leave his home planet. But then again, maybe that's what the aliens wanted him to think. So as he was walking around, uh, he got some funnel cake in the meantime, and he was munching on that. And some working on, someone working on the behalf of the festival approached him, and he said, Oh, do you have your wristband? And Gerald said, No, uh, well, I have my, uh, I have my entry wristband. Uh, it's a light blue one here. And the festival person said, Okay, but do you have your other wristband? And Gerald said, No, no, I don't think I do. Festival volunteer said, Oh, let me give that to you. So he put it on Gerald's wrist. And they said to him, Yeah, make sure you don't get a rash from these wristbands. You might want to check the inside, you know, to see if your skin's irritated at all. Yeah. Look on the other side of this wristband when you get a chance. And he vanished into the crowd. Gerald didn't know what he meant at the time, but it only took him uh, half an ounce of common sense to realize that the festival worker wanted him to check the inside of the wristband for a reason, so without trying to rip it or to tear, tear it off his wrist, he 
Nero turned to uh, try to flip the wristband over and there's some writing on it. It was a set of coordinates and a time uh, set for two o'clock in the afternoon. wristband said that, that would be the time when the scoop of gelato would be unveiled. Now, it wasn't illegal to be exposed to gelato. It was only illegal to eat it. So the festival people knew that even if it was revealed only once, that would be enough for a lot of people to prove that it was real. Because since the aliens came and took over the planet, humans had a much harder grasp to define what was real and what was not. Far more than they used to, with their reality being shaken every day. Uh, the hour came closer uh, Gerald made his way to the coordinates it was just on the outskirts of the festival it was just a, a very flat area that he approached and there was already a dense crowd uh, surrounding one singular point that was remaining open with a few other festival people around to 
Anyone who needs it, you know? And the stranger said, Oh, cool, cool, really cool. Yeah, a lot of people uh, are really hungry these days. And Gerald solemnly nodded. Eventually, it became even closer to 2 o'clock. Everyone was gather gathered around in a very tight circle. if the scoop would be unveiled. Gerald had his binoculars and he was staring at the circle waiting, his mouth watering. It was very hot out. And more than anything, could he go for a scoop of gelato? Actually, 40 minutes, and people were getting a bit more antsy. You know, a lot of people had water and their own uh, refreshments and food, but even still, it wasn't quite the same as the gelato. But then Gerald heard a humming from the distance. He grabbed his binoculars and looked in that direction. He saw a helicopter approach. Thought weird. I haven't seen any helicopters since I was a kid. So the helicopter approached and landed in the center of the open space among the people. And then someone, either waiting on the ground or from the helicopter, sophisticated set of speakers. Okay, we have what you've come for. Everyone is permitted one scoop, and then that's it. And Gerald thought, one scoop. And then he nudged the stranger next to him, the same person he was talking to earlier. Hey, I thought it was just gonna be one scoop period, that everyone came for one scoop. And then the stranger said, I thought so too, but maybe they just have, you know, maybe they actually do have more than they thought or something. Or maybe they just wanted to pull people in that really wanted what we came for. And only the diehards would be able to get a scoop. I finally have a scoop of gelato that I've desperately craved. He thought about it. His mouth watered even more. He looked up at the sky. Barely any clouds that day. and didn't have a good feeling about it. He knew the Imperial aliens had satellites that could spy on humans. 
with a casual ease. So maybe it wasn't the best idea to have gelato out in the open. Before he knew it, people were lining up to get a scoop of gelato. his childhood memories and the sweet, sweet taste of gelato. So as an hour passed and eventually it was his turn to have the scoop he's been so desperately craving. gave it to him, he was given a scoop of rice pudding. He didn't understand it first, but he accepted it, and that in a plastic spoon. So he uh, uncapped the pudding and started eating it. He was just like, ah, oh, rice pudding's okay, I guess. Um, this isn't what I came for. Is, is this even gelato? Is the gelato even exist? He was having a mini existential crisis about why he would wait in line for an hour for a snack that he was ambivalent about. But then he realized... Once he got to the end of the rice pudding, there was a false bottom. And trying to keep it out of view from the sky, he slightly lifted it. And there it was. A little thing of... a little lump of gelato. It was very sloppy to his eye, but at the time it might as well have been the perfect blend of everything you'd find in it. His breathing became more sporadic. He even started to sweat a little, not just from the heat, from the excitement, and he thought to himself, could this be? Is this it? So what he did is uh, he just moved the false bottom to the side of the cup, dug his spoon in, and then had the gelato. 
the time it felt like the greatest joy he's ever had. Mm, it was cold. It had like a key lime kind of flavor to it. It was amazing. He wanted so much more, but he knew he he knew it wouldn't be wise to get greedy. He just savored it. Let it sit in his tongue until it melted and dissolved. Let it uh, sit between his gums. He didn't even care if it stung his teeth with the cold. He just savored it. Like he savored every pleasure since the Imperial aliens came. among the crowd ten minutes later. And then all of a sudden, a fenced area shot up all around the crowd. It must, must have stretched out to at least a mile high. And then it all, the whole fence clothes upon the crowd, like the shape of a cone over top of them. Everyone was freaking out, asking what the hell was going on. And then an Imperial spacecraft came and latched itself onto the tip of the cone up the entire ground, the entire crowd with the sand and ground beneath them. That was when Gerald knew it was a trap. All it took was a single scoop of gelato to lure 10,000 people in. And by their laws, it was enough, of, enough grounds to banish them. send him to a labor camp or to a remote prison. Any number of uh, atrocious fates. All for a trivial scoop of gelato. went by, everyone was uh, herded into a remote uh, prison spacecrafts as a form of holding cells. Gerald was sitting in his for about a month before he was interrogated. He was summoned by the aliens, who looked more human than he'd like to admit. that the aliens were just humans that migrated off Earth many years ago. 
but then figured out certain advancements in technology and methods of living that can make them imperial and then take over parts of the galaxy. So for all debatable person, for all debatable terms, they were indeed human. Which is something Gerald learned while he was on the ship. They never showed themselves to the earthbound humans when they arrived. But getting to know them as prison guards, as uh, interrogating officers, he knew that these interstellar travelers were all but too human. So during his first interrogation session, they were asking about his life, about the gelato. kept asking, did you eat the gelato? Did you eat the gelato? He thought it was strange that they were asking about if he ate gelato, if they already had evidence to, to, that he did. So he just said, no, no, I just had rice pudding, I don't even like gelato. And then they said, oh, come on. You know how much you've loved gelato. And Gerald said, Even if I did, how would you even know that? And then the interrogating officer that was speaking to him said, Oh, guess that's what we wanted you to think. You see, we're, you're not really here because you ate gelato. We know of the work you've done to the food bank. We're the only ones who want to distribute food to people. We can't have other people supplying resources. But it's certainly not technically legal by our laws to distribute food freely. So what we've done with you and the other people who came to the gelato exodus is that we implanted memories for you to think that gelato was the best thing ever. We attach childhood nostalgia, a wide spectrum of flavors for you to reminisce on, or for you to come to the Exodus and to give you a reason to break the law. We do have camera footage of you eating the gelato. So you don't have to admit it if you don't want to. But it'll only lead to a lot more pain and suffering if you don't admit it. Gerald thought about this. The false pretenses of gelato. And how they're really after him for distributing food that wasn't on their terms. He was so stupefied by the realization that he just sat there quietly, not saying anything. And at that point, the officers took him back to his cell.
thought about this, he thought about how the gelato and the love for gelato was made. And how these interstellar humans use herding techniques to bring everyone here under false and really fucked up pretenses. So reflecting on his life, which was all up for question considering the memory implants that may or may not have happened. And thinking about his future, the one question he asked himself was, do I even like gelato? That was some dark territory for a story about gelato to go. If you want to submit a story title yourself, you can send an email to quarantinespookshow at gmail.com. All these titles are me seeing them for the first time. to tell the second story. Alright, this one's called Dr. Leviticus and the Talking Skull. There is one thing Dr. Leviticus wanted more than anything. It was answers. Now, the doctor wasn't only a scientist, he was also a historian. It was only a week ago when he dug up the grave of an ancient alchemist and took his skull. He found an old uh, derelict building to do his research tower in the middle of the woods. Ever since he was chewed out from the scientific community. So 
this alchemist skull, he tried to do experiments to communicate with it. Blending both the power of his scientific fortitude as well as ancient magic of various Western, Eastern, and African traditions. Understood his pursuit for discovering the nature of the universe, the nature of humanity, what makes us exist. If he could con make contact with an ancient to find those answers, boy howdy, that'd be peachy keen. But if he had a friend to discuss, discuss these quandaries with, that would give his life far more meaning than what he could surmise himself. Top floor of this derelict counter, this derelict tower. He had a lot of chemistry gear around. He would resort to the ancient practices of alchemy. But again, he had the scientific fortitude to bring it into fruition. People dismiss alchemy as just a sloppy precursor to chemistry, but he knew that there is more to be discovered. The power of intent in the human soul, even the construct alone had power. Power of the mind. Projecting all of that to the hard factual physics of chemistry. He knew he could achieve great things, and to, of course, find answers. was awake for 20 hours straight was when he first heard the skull speak for the first time and he just simply said I'm thirsty 
The doctor jumped up, not believing what he heard. Thirsty, how can a skull be thirsty? Uh, okay, I'll, I'll figure something out. So I tried to go to his fridge at one of the, his, uh, his food refrigerator at one of the lower levels. Pulled out a Coca-Cola. Tried to put a little cool bendy straw in it. And then tried to feed it to the skull through the teeth. And then he's thought of ancestor rituals that are still practiced today. So he thought a better approach would just be leave it next to the skull. And perhaps the skull would consume its essence in time. So the doctor slept. Wasn't sure if he actually made contact with the ancient. Or if he was just hallucinating. And, just, and it was just another torture of the prison in his own mind. But still, his work beckoned him to choose optimism every once in a while. was also cracked. Now, from his understanding, uh, which was perhaps novice at best, with an ancestor offering, only the an only the essence would be absorbed. But this time, it was hard physical matter. his attempt to merge hard scientific reasoning and facts with the fluidity of magic were perhaps finally coming to fruition. very excited. He picked up the cracked glass, riveted, and 
tried to speak to the skull. Can you hear me? And through a sound in his inner ear, like the voice was coming from the inside of it, it said, yes, I can hear you. And the doctor said, still trying to be skeptical to make sure it was not just the power of his own mind doing the talking. He humbly said, You seem like someone with answers. And the skull said, Perhaps. If you have questions, maybe I can answer them. And then the doctor gulped waiting his whole life for this moment. But when it finally arrived, he didn't know how to begin. The doctor remained silent. He didn't... He wouldn't... He... His mind made a stutter step. He couldn't possibly... of the nature of ancient, he realized that the skull was once a person, and perhaps traversing the afterlife, whatever that was. He's made some encounters of his own. So the doctor said, tell me a story. About you meeting an ancient that came before us. began to speak. And the doctor listened keenly. And the skull said, the skull discussed the story about when he first died. And he wandered a, a dense fog and some dark green grass. And he encountered a tavern by a windmill. I newly died, perhaps I should meet some people if I'm going to spend eternity with them. I don't know if this is purgatory or heaven or some other construct that I haven't encountered about the afterlife, but let's see where this goes. So he tried to talk to people, talk to other humans older than him that died before him. As he went on to discuss the nature of the tavern and all the people that would come and go, he relayed to the doctor, I have no shot of, I have no greater chance of meeting the grand ancients than you do. It doesn't matter if you're alive or not. They're all around us and yet nowhere to be found.
this didn't please the doctor. He eventually snapped at the talking skull. I don't need your ambiguities. I've encountered them all my life. Through all the studies I've made, I've tried to make sense of it. Tell me an answer, the doctor shouted. And the talking skull just said, you know, you can't. There's no way of packaging these mysteries. Even the nature of mathematics. Your language of the physical phenomena. phenomena. Even the nature of physics you've discovered so far. It's still only a transcription of what truly is. frustrated with the talking skull said introduce me to an ancient please I don't think it's too much to ask and then the skull said very well Dr. Lepidicus they're on their way and the doctor waited Nervous. Felt a little bit bad of being uh, too abrasive to the talking skull. He thought of perhaps having more correspondence with the talking skull. He envisioned them getting to shenanigans together, you know, maybe even solving mysteries or whatnot trying to solve the answers of the physical and the non-physical universe. So, uh, ten minutes go by, and the doctor's waiting. And he says, well, it's... Who's this ancient that you're introducing me to? And the talking skull said, he's on his way. And then all of a sudden, the doctor heard a thump like an earthquake. Shelves. 
doctor shouts at the talking skull, Who are you introducing me to? And then the talking skull just said, An ancient that contributes to governing the nature of Earth. Doctor looked outside his tower. And saw there was a cataclysm on the earth. Akin to an earthquake. And then the doctor said, No, 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 this is this is too much. And I don't think I'll be able to live through this interaction. Talking Skull said, well, what did you expect? See, the thing about the Ancients, about the cosmic forces that existed far before humans, far before Earth, is that they don't register human mortality, mortality like we do. They don't register human desire, or anything like that. They'll do their, they'll conform to their nature and do their own bidding in the same way we do. Except our essence isn't as noticeable to them. And whether or not you're on the fallout of their actions, that's on you. Sometimes it's unavoidable. But what I've found timing in the afterlife. Because if you try to control these things, then they'll come back to haunt you. To try to conquer the unconquerable. And then you reap what you will sow. There's a multitude of consequences to it. Trying to summon a nation like this is its own consequence. So you've made this decision, Doctor. Which happened to these forces? Whether you're ready or not, you didn't care. So whatever is to come rests on you. The doctor was panicking, trying to pack his material belongings, but he knew it would be futile. But then one thing he thought. He went to the skull and then grabbed it in its bosom. And then the talking skull said, what are you doing? doctor said, well, if I want, if I'm going to meet my demise, can I at least have your company? And Talking Skull said, sure, sure. Eventually the cataclysm in the earth opens up, and the derelict tower falls into it. Doctor just remembers it falling in the dark, 
falling in the darkness and everything going black. And then he wakes up on a beach. The talking skulls next to him. sunrise. And even though the doctor encountered these types of metaphors before, he thought, oh, I see now. So he watched the sunrise, enjoying it, seeing all the light uh, manipulate the shapes of the clouds. So eventually the doctor stands up, brushes some sand off, and then sits back down, facing the talking skull, halfway buried in the sand. And the doctor pulls the skull out, and then sets it down, and then the doctor simply asks, What next? Another story. <laughs> this one's called I Love to Hoe. a spontaneous uh, move to the Midwest.
but he went for it anyway. He felt like he ran out of uh, chips in his life to gamble with. So he just had to start somewhere new. He knew a lot of people who grew up on the west coast would always romanticize about going east. He knew a lot of people on the east coast would romanticize about going west. So he wasn't quite sure why he moved from California to the Midwest. Maybe he just wanted to see a side of America he's never seen before. Maybe he just needed something new. Anything new. If that new thing was Wisconsin, you know, he was totally down. So he found a community farm uh, that had a uh, room and board system where if you worked on the farm, you can live rent-free. And then you'd make a small amount of money, enough for some pocket money or enough to save. He certainly didn't feel stiffed by the deal. Because for a lot of people, rent is always the one of the biggest, if not the biggest, expense. So he was fine just like having a place he could safely crash with just an extra couple bucks a month. got used to the farm life, you know, growing tomatoes, growing squashes, zucchini, all kinds of stuff, you know. When he first arrived on the farm, uh, the head honcho there, he was just like, alright, so what kind of stuff do you want to grow, you know? You know? It's just like a nice, we got like a nice little commune thing going, going but, you know. Whatever you want to do, we want to push that towards you as much as possible. So the young chap, uh, whose name was uh, Mitch, was just like, uh, you know, I think, you know, I think my favorite fruit would probably be like pineapple. You know, I've always really wanted to grow pineapple. I think that'd be really cool. And then the farmer there, you know, named John, was just like, all right, well, you know, we don't have pineapple here. Uh, you know, that doesn't grow in this region. Uh, I guess you would have to try Hawaii to grow pineapple, because that's where a lot of pineapple you find in America, you know, that's where it comes from. Uh, it gets shipped to Florida sometimes, and then from there it gets shipped to other supermarkets throughout the country. So, uh... Or gets shipped to Florida or California. It's been a while since I've been the since I've been in the uh, national produce racket. But this is the place to grow pineapple. You know, this is a northern region. We got some farms. You know, but mainly thanks to the region. You know, things you've encountered. We got tomatoes. We got squashes. 
you know. We'd be growing cannabis if it was legal here, but it's uh, not because it's Wisconsin, you know. But then again, I haven't checked the cannabis laws in quite some time. But yeah, just like your basic fruit, you know, and vegetables. So, but again, anything you want to do specifically that we do do here, uh, you're down for doing that. And then when Mitch was like, well, I love to hoe. And the farmer said, you love to hoe? And then Mitch said, oh yeah. I love it as much as carrying speakers. You know, when I was, uh, when I did work as a musician, I just, one of my favorite things was just carrying all the speakers and all the amps just to the venue, all by myself, crossing streets, crossing parking lots. I would even park further away just so I could carry the speakers. And I feel the exact same way about hoes. I love to hoe. And when I was a musician, you know, if I was working a larger event and they had like some, uh, AV guys or like some roadies like carrying stuff, I'd be like, nah man, I'll carry these speakers. And then the farmer uh, was just like, well, um, well, if you love the hoe, that's great. Uh, we do have like a, a mechanical tool, tools for that, uh, for plowing and stuff. So it's not quite as necessary for planting seeds. And then Mitch said, no, 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 believe me, I love the hoe. I just love the labor. I love just making things much harder for myself. I just, just like give it to me. I'm down for the work, please. And that farmer was just like, oh, okay, shit. Um, yeah, sure. We'll uh, give you your hoe. And, you know, we'll get started on it. And then Mitch said, well, can I name my hoe? And uh, the farmer said, well, I, I guess. I mean, like all the. All the tools you're going to be using are technically property of the commune farm thing we got going here. But uh, if you want to name it for your own personal reasons, that's cool. But it's definitely not going to be like a, you know, it's not an official farm tool naming thing. And Mitch was just like, alright, yeah, cool. So Mitch made it to the farm. Uh, he was, uh, he definitely knew how to work, that was for sure. And he arrived just uh, the time when it was time to plant seeds. And boy howdy, was he hoeing. He uh, started to hoe in dirt and was like planting seeds and all that, you know. He was a real pro at it, you know. Another commune farmer who's just named Janine was just like, ah, I really like the way you hoe. And then Mitch was just like, haha, thanks. Yeah, the, they were starting to, you know, plant seeds and hoeing and getting into the farming process, watching things sprout and all that getting ready to both sell and donate the uh, harvest once it was fully uprooted. But then when all the seeds were planted, you know, Mitch was getting pretty bummed out. 
there was one time when uh, everyone working and living at the farm, sitting at a table for a group meal, he was just like, oh yeah, you know, I don't know where I've been steering my life all these years, you know. If there's one thing that I need to learn, I need to learn how to work to discipline myself, you know. Ever since I saw that documentary of about Biosphere 2 from the 80s, about the people uh, building a biodome, you know, it was a big media circus at the time in the 1980s. It's stunning how it's virtually forgotten these days. If you Google Biosphere 2, it's a crazy story. Steve Bannon's involved, and that's weird, but, uh, yeah, but I was just so inspired by the people who put that together, you know wildlife from the uh, Great Barrier Reef despite it dying, you know. Just to have like a little incubated thing. I mean, a lot of people would argue that uh, you know, they had a good initiative but they just kind of did it wrong. They were very dismissive of the wildlife pre-existing on Earth. And there's also the notion of why would you uh, focus on living in a dome off planet when you can just repair the planet and try to nurture it so you don't have to live off world once it's inevitably destroyed. But I think Biosphere 2 is stellar, despite all the health risks and all the suffering that the people uh, living there went through, the lack of oxygen. I mean, who needs oxygen, you know? Anyway. So yeah, I'm just ready to work, and I'm really bummed that uh, we're past the hoeing phase of the farm. And then Janine just kind of looked at Mitch, and she was just like, oh yeah, you, uh, you really do love to hoe. And then Mitch was just like, I do. I sure do like to hoe. Nay, not like to hoe, love to hoe. We have, um, some experimental soil that you can hoe. And then Mitch was just like, oh, I'm down. And, uh, the farmer said, yeah, it's, uh, it is special soil. It's, uh, it's sacred soil, but it's okay to hoe it, you know. We're not, like, defiling anything by doing so. However... Tampering with the soil is a great risk, you know. People who have tried to farm this land in the past have met their end in a very unpleasant way. So, you know, as generations went by, we wouldn't dare to go near it. Go near it. And it has been consecrated for that reason, for its mysterious properties. Openly welcome the farm uh, for 
Performing on it is a risk. It was consecrated in the hopes that it could be farmed someday. Considering how the soil is mysterious, it can grow into something very beautiful. But you see, everyone who tries to hoe it, and who tries to plant seeds, again, they meet their ultimate demise. So Mitch, if you're down, uh, I can take you to this place and you can hoe it if you'd like. And Mitch said, well, I do love hoeing. And I am willing to sacrifice myself for a greater good. And the farmer, uh, suddenly questioning, inviting Mitch into the commune, it's just like, uh, Alright, well, you know, if you want to hoe it, you know, go for it. So, uh, the next week, the farmer escorts Mitch to the mysterious grounds on foot. Janine goes with them because she got chatty with Mitch and definitely didn't want him to destroy himself for doing something that wasn't very well thought out despite the good intentions. So eventually the farmer and Mitch, they arrive on the site. It's just tucked away in the forest somewhere. Very thin forest, but a forest none. The less. There are trees in Wisconsin. And then the farmer is just like, alright, well, this is the place. And Mitch said, well, is this like a burial ground? Is it a graveyard? Is it a... You know, is there, what's, you know, what's the deal with the soil? It's just like, no, it's just even, you know, even since the indigenous people that came before it, this soil specifically, there's something about it. I don't quite know. But again, no one is there to hoe the soil due to the risk. So if you want to take that risk, you know, that's on you. I support you and, you know. And then Mitch thought about it and he's just like, well, I do love to hoe. Alright, I'm gonna get into it. So he had the bags of seeds that he brought with him, set them down, and just started hoeing, hoeing the soil. And the farmer started to walk back and said to Janine, are you gonna stay here? And then Janine said, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna stay. And then the farmer said, well, probably shouldn't, but again, that's on you. So I just started walking back without turning back. Janine just stood at the outskirts of the area of the soil and just watched. And Mitch, you know, to give him credit, he was hoeing like a champ, you know. You know, barely broke a sweat and, uh, just hoeing up. He was a physically strong dude, you know, had some endurance. 
he was just like, yeah, I'm just straight up hoeing right now. He was just like, pull up some soil, drop some seeds. Pull up some soil, drop seeds. And he was just like, yeah, this is awesome. I sure do love to hoe. He was uh, getting into it. But then he reached one patch of soil. When he tried to hoe it, it wouldn't, uh, there would be no grooves made in the soil. As soon as he made the groove, the soil would just sink back into them as if he didn't touch it at all. As if it was a newly buried uh, hole or a pit. So Mitch kept digging at the soil. It was just... It was like dealing with quicksand. He didn't understand it. I mean, he was relieved that he got some seeds in so far, but... trying to hoe it, but the grooves wouldn't be met. So Janine was watching Mitch overworking himself, trying to get the hoeing right, you know. And then Janine was just like, Mitch, this probably isn't the best idea. I mean, everyone you literally talked about this said that you shouldn't be out hoeing this land, you know. You better uh, just head back, you know. And Mitch was just like, no, no. Because I love to hoe, and I'm definitely gonna hoe this soil. So it kept going at it, and it kept refilling itself up. It defied everything he knew about physics at the time. So he kept grinding at the soil, overworking himself. ground for sure so again he kept hoeing and eventually he overworked himself so much that he collapsed into the soil and like quicksand it started to absorb him a little bit and Janine said oh my god Mitch Mitch she ran to him and tried to pull him out of the soil, but the soil was had a grip on him. It was slowly sucking him in. And the Mitch tried to squirm, tried to get out of the soil that was absorbing him. But it only made it worse. It made him sink faster. And Janine tried to tug on him as much as she could, but then her heels and feet were sinking into the soil, so she backed off, off of it, still trying to pull Mitch, but eventually he sunk too low for her to pull out, 
and his mouth sunk underneath the soil as well, and his screams were buried beneath dirt. Eventually, the only thing that was left of him was an arm shaking around in the soil, trying to claw at it, trying to pull himself out. And then eventually the arm was, as it kept wrangling around, it eventually stopped. And it just lied there limp. With the rest of Mitch already suffocated in the dirt. And then Janine grabbed a shovel that was nearby and tried to dig him out. she did he was it was too late he was he was already dead so she pulled out his body and carried it back to the farm they contacted his family in California tried to arrange a pickup so they could pick up the body bring it across state lines to have a proper burial there but even still, they had their own ceremony for Mitch, you know. Not a lot of people liked him there. He really talked about hoeing a lot. But still a horrible way to go. And they were very respectful at his memorial. Personal feelings aside. So, as the months went by, and eventually it was harvest time, commune farm was, you know, pulling up plants and whatnot, having a very magnificent bounty that year. But it was also in the, on the same soil, on the same patch of land where Mitch met his demise. Crops were going there as well. It was the same seeds that he planted before he died. There were some tomatoes, squashes, whatever he managed to plant. And knowing the risk, some people from the commune harvested those plants, the few that he did, the few that Mitch did uh, plant. They were fortunate enough to not get sucked in by the soil. There was always a percentage of the plants that the farm sold, and a percentage that the farm donated. But then, uh, but for what Mitch planted in the soil that uh, overcame him, they had a feast. So that Mitch's hard work that he died for would not be, would not be unappreciated. So they had that feast, they prepared the they prepared the tomatoes, the squashes. And then everyone there all mutually agreed that it was the best meal they ever had.
that's been Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. Good night.